Hi, everybody. This show is a project of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, which is launching a new series of podcasts examining the relevance of the classical tradition today. We're excited to bring new topics to new audiences and want your feedback. Write to podcasts at classicist.org with your comments. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Cities We Live In. I'm Kellen Krauss, an architect who grew up in the suburbs and is now living the city life. Each time I return home, I think about what lessons can be applied from a traditional walkable city to car-oriented developments. On this show, I'll travel from city to city with two fellow architects and urbanists. Hi, my name is Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro. And I am Anthony Katanyak. We'll meet up with friends who can tell us all about what it's like to live in their city. In this episode, we head to Charleston. We're always asking what makes something beautiful. And Charleston is an example of why beauty matters. Charleston was actually one of the few walled cities in colonial America. It was defensible, it was protected, but it was also a sort of community of bon vivants. That's Sebastian von Marshall, architect at Bo Clowney in Charleston. He's worked up and down the East Coast. You can follow Sebastian's travels on Instagram at svonmarshall, where he meticulously reports on the architectural history of his travels both abroad and at home in South Carolina. Of course, at first it was confined by the walls, but pretty quickly started outgrowing that perimeter in the early 18th century as homes and homesteads started springing up around the peninsula by uh, the 17-teens. Sebastian, I'm looking at Meeting Street, and it seems to be an axis throughout the city, almost like a spinal cord, similar to what Fifth Avenue is to Manhattan. But Meeting Street is where the old wall used to be, right? So Meeting Street was the western boundary. There was a wall running along there. I think it even had a fortified gate at the intersection of what is now Broad and Meeting Street, which is known colloquially as the Four Corners of the Law. One of those corners is St. Michael's Church. Uh, north of that is the City Hall. Across the street, west of that is the Old State House, which is now the County Court. And across from that is the Federal Court. All that is to say, it's hard to recognize the original city or much of it as an original walled city. That infrastructure is long gone, and it was never the kind of substantial fortification that you would have seen in a lot of European cities with massive masonry walls. They simply didn't have the rock to build anything that substantial. In terms of the layout of the streets, the original location of Charleston, at the time Charlestown, on the peninsula in 1680, was on the eastern side on the Cupper River. And the streets are narrower. The scale of the buildings generally smaller. So you do preserve some of that early 18th century city experience. As you start moving progressively west, the blocks do get considerably larger, the houses get bigger. There's certainly a shift in the urban arrangement of the buildings, of the lot sizes. As you move northward, similarly, those became very wealthy suburbs that obviously took advantage of much more land after the walls had been removed. I'm glad you mentioned the Four Corners because one of the things that has always struck me as odd about Charleston is how you have four very prominent civic buildings 
at an intersection, but there's no square. It's just an intersection. And yet it's a very important civic space. That's always been the case throughout history. The intersection itself has always played a fairly prominent role. So the location of St. Michael's used to be the location of the original St. Philip's Church, which burnt down and then was replaced by the St. Michael's Church and Parish. Directly to the north of that originally was a market. I think it sold meat. So that was kind of a cultural center. You would have had people going to get their groceries or more accurately have their groceries purchased for them in places like that. It wouldn't have been a very pleasant corner originally. Remember, this was also a big city gate, so there would have been a lot of coming and going, people in and out, uh, people trading. You would have had Native Americans coming in to trade. You would have had local hunters and trappers moving through there. The next building after St. Michael's would have been what was then considered the State House, which was Caddy Corner, and at the time was a Neo-Palladian Georgian building, which was then modified by James Hoban, of all people, interestingly. That really, I think, started to set up the significance of that intersection, then followed by the bank, which was designed by Gabriel Manigo in early 19th century, in the northeast quadrant, and then eventually the post office, which replaced a beautiful guardhouse by Charles Reichardt in the 1830s. You do have a public park directly behind the bank that then became and what is now City Hall in the Northeast. You know, the great thing about St. Philip's too is that it's a great building and also a great urban moment, the way the church pokes out and the steeple terminates the street from both directions. There are a couple of cases like that in the city where a building really engages a street. That is, without a doubt, as you mentioned, probably the best one. Uh, interestingly, the third iteration of Phillips was actually pushed back a little bit. The second version had been further even into Church Street, and it was pulled back slightly with the street still riding around the front portico. But the way it engages Church Street from the south, the portico on the west, the portico on the north, it really, it's a wonderful moment. There are so many different kind of neighborhoods that have their own vitality and tell their own story about how the city grew. So perhaps the most authentic or original part would be in what would have been the original portion of the city, although unfortunately there's not much left of it. Charleston, originally founded in 1680 in this location on what is called the peninsula. Before that, it actually existed for 10 years on the other side of the river. 1670, it was set up on a, in a place called Albemarle Point. That location was originally chosen over a spot a little further south for a couple of strategic reasons. There was also a conversation with a local Native American tribe that convinced the English at the time to settle on the Ashley River. It was sort of a mutually beneficial relationship. They were hoping to get protection and by having some European guns in town that looked pretty good to them. Were those strategic reasons mostly to do with the fence or did a lot of it have to do with port or shipping or trade? Well, it turned out it was also a very strategically good location for a port. It has a wonderful natural harbor that's fairly deep, although not as deep as further south in Port Royal around Beaufort. It's actually, I think, considered a better harbor and was actually used by the Navy for quite some time. 
But the peninsula and the area around Charleston where it is now ended up being really good and worked out very well for everybody because it does have a great natural location. It did work out well with this relationship with some Native Americans, and there were others, of course, that were not quite as friendly. And then, of course, the other powerhouse in this part of the world at the time were the Spanish. So Spanish Florida that came into Georgia and worked its way up the coast was a constant threat for the first few decades of Charleston's existence, and it was something they constantly had to contend with. So as you moved up the peninsula, larger tracts of land were gradually purchased or claimed or, or deeded, I suppose. They did become then private farms and private plantations. And then those gradually started spreading out from the city. So you have perhaps the most well-known Middleton Plantation, Drain Hall Plantation, out on the Ashley as you go further uh, south and west, and then spreading in all directions eventually into a farming community and a farming culture. I'm looking at a mid-19th century map of Charleston, and I can't help but notice that there's a lot of piers on the eastern coast. Similar to the piers that you would see in Manhattan at around the same time, the streets almost connected to the docks. Now in Manhattan, the port moved away entirely to New Jersey, and that's where the modern port is. But in Charleston, I'm looking at a modern map now, and the modern port is still there. The city is actually losing a lot of its connection to the water. Downtown south of Broad in the residential neighborhood, luckily still have a lot of that around the Battery and along Murray Boulevard, where you have that relationship between the houses and the people and the street life to the Cooper River and the Ashley River and the harbor. But increasingly, it's being threatened by a lot of developments which are going up. Their scale and their location is starting to block that direct connection. It's also very unfortunate because you get a dramatic shift in scale from the smaller scale residential buildings to the larger developments. That juxtaposition along with the fact that the larger buildings form essentially a barrier around the perimeter of the peninsula is cutting off that connection to the water and the wetland, which has always been so much part of the culture of the city. And then, of course, as you go further up the peninsula, all the port facilities that have sprung up completely dominate the waterfront. So you have the cruise terminal, the cargo port, the car shipping port, and then the naval base. And all that is prime waterfront real estate, which unfortunately has been relegated to industrial use. A lot of the early builders were drawing heavily on English precedent, the kind of literature that any fine country gentleman would have owned, a collection of Palladio and Kent and Chambers and Gibbs and those Georgian pattern books that led to some incredibly spectacular buildings that were executed primarily by very skilled builders and carpenters, not even necessarily architects. A lot of the gentlemen planters who had time on their hands and a excellent education and background were amateur architects themselves. But primarily it was English. For a long time, most of the prominent planters sent their children back to be educated in England. They were absorbing the culture, the architecture, and that's very visible early on. You do start having strong Caribbean influences as well, though, as a good number of early settlers were coming out of places like Barbados. They were coming from that climate and they're coming from that culture, which drove a lot of the vernacular nuances that you now come to associate with Charleston. So for example, porches, general forms of building materials, 
coral stone was imported, tabby was used. And then, of course, you also had various other groups. You had the Huguenots who were coming in, many of whom had spent a good bit of time after leaving France in the Netherlands. So you see some Dutch influences even in some of the building forms. Much of what the city is known for, of course, is the antebellum architecture from the mid-19th century, right before the war. So, for example, walking along the Battery, that might be the, the quintessential experience. That's where spectators gathered when the opening shots of the Civil War were fired, where you would have seen Hurricane Hugo blowing in in 1989. The Miles Burton House, hands down, one of the greatest houses in the city, the state, and possibly the country. It is a perfectly executed Palladian city house. It is everything that you would expect and more, and absolutely jaw-dropping. The Roper House on the Battery, attributed to Charles Reichardt, among others, is perhaps more quintessentially the Charleston that most imagine. It was owned by Dick Jenneret, who in his book describes it as his Gone with the Wind dream. It has the monumental ionic column order. In a sense, it shows the evolution of the single house typology in Charleston. Fascinating building, a beautiful building, and prominently located right on the battery, so you really can't go wrong. So Charleston is probably the most well-known for the side yard house typology. I wonder, besides climactic conditions, what other kinds of factors were driving that form? whether it be the way the lots were platted, whether it be urban regulations that were in effect at that time, what other kinds of influences were driving that side yard type? So the single house with the short end abutting the street and then the, the long side facing a garden into a lot, it was driven by a lot of those factors. The form itself, again, was thought to come from the Caribbean. It was only one room thick. So the idea was that it took advantage of a lot of the climatic benefits of cross-ventilation, orientation, things like that. Of course, it also had social and cultural influences that kind of shaped the form of the house, but also the um, hierarchy of the rooms within the house. At the time, you still had very dirty and unpleasant streets, so getting off of the ground was a good idea. The second floor room overlooking the street was really the principal room for entertaining. Many of them were built without porches. In fact, most of them until the latter half of the 18th century did not have porches on them, which seems counterintuitive, but most of the old single houses you see downtown were built without them. They were later addition that were part of the Enlightenment understandings in medicine, benefits of ventilation, the benefits of outdoors and fresh air and sunshine. They, of course, had the added benefit that the porches on the southern and primarily western exposures were good for blocking sunlight. They became the de facto front door. So it really kind of changed the social and the culture dynamic as well because you've completely changed the relationship to the street, the relationship to the city, the relationship between people, how they interact, what is public, what is private. That's interesting to hear the evolution of the placement of the front door because you have that interesting condition on so many of these homes where the front door is built into a wall, but then you turn the corner and the porch is completely open to the yard. And you probably wouldn't see that anywhere else except Charleston. It is a fairly unique building type. There were a couple of other factors that came out of it. So 
primarily with all the porches on the same sides of the buildings, it meant that, of course, you were always looking at the backside of another building. One of the big concerns at the time was the spread of fire. So the back of those single houses that would be facing the yard and then the porch of the adjacent house was often primarily solid to prevent fires from spreading. Now, Charleston notoriously had numerous fires, some more destructive than others, and most destructive perhaps was in the 1860s, right around the Civil War. One of the more memorable moments urbanistically in Charleston, the Charleston City Market and the linear sequence of market buildings there. I'm curious about the development of that linear form of market building and the development urbanistically of that whole sequence of markets. What were the influences that were affecting the location and the whole linear nature of that sequence? So the prominent building anchoring the market is by E.B. White, and it is a wonderful raised pavilion. My take is that it is a Roman building for a lot of reasons, the detailing, the massing, the scale. Behind that is the market. As you mentioned, it sort of stretches east to west and is now filled with a lot of stalls. I think it grew simply because the city needed a large market and it moved at the time closer to the periphery. The market itself is a little bit of a relic, really, and it's an interesting phenomenon because from a local standpoint, it's not very well used as a market for Charlestonians. Much of that part of the city has been growing and has been catering primarily to the tourism industries. Well, it is interesting to see the building from an aerial standpoint because the beginning of it is fairly close to the city, but because the building is so long, by the time you get to the end of it, you're literally at the docks. So you can see that natural sequence of commerce, how ships would dock, they would unload the goods, and then they would feed directly into the market stalls for people to buy. So with markets and parks and everything proximate to the river, buildings have had to adapt with new guidelines to protect themselves from water. And usually this defense seems to be building high walls. How has that change affected the urban fabric at the edge? The problem is, regardless of the causes, rising sea levels and the flooding issue in Charleston is incredibly complex and driven by so many different factors simply raising your house doesn't exactly get you out of the pan because if the water comes and you're sitting high and dry, you're still stuck <laughs> and you can't get anywhere. A lot of Charleston simply floods. Of course, the Charleston, is, once the water comes in, it goes away again. It's not New Orleans after Katrina where the water reaches the levees and then just sits in the depression because much of New Orleans is below sea level. Charleston luckily is not. It is close to sea level, but it is still above sea level. So the inundation from hurricanes with severe flooding does eventually run off again. That being said, of course, it's a very inconvenient nuisance and certainly something that the city has been working to address. The zoning laws are driven heavily downtown by the status as a national landmark district, which does give owners the ability at their discretion to raise houses above flood 
according to FEMA regulations, which some of them do. The Board of Architectural Review, of course, is stuck in a difficult situation because they're trying to preserve the historic character of the buildings and of the neighborhoods and of the community, which, of course, is dramatically affected by lifting houses. An existing streetscape is completely changed when you move from looking at a wonderfully detailed door edicule to looking at a brick foundation and a door floating 12 feet up in the air. It's a completely different experience. Another factor is a lot of the large-scale development is, of course, increasing the number of impervious surfaces and is increasing the number of very massive buildings, which are rerouting a lot of the flooding water and, in some cases, affecting certain areas of the communities in ways that they hadn't ever been before. A lot of the problems are man-made. We're causing them ourselves by removing wetlands and by covering much of the ground with with buildings and parking lots and concrete. I think it also raises a really interesting question about how you preserve tradition in a city. A city keeps adapting over time, and sometimes there's this line drawn in the sand to say, well, this period in time is when we realize this is an important building. We want to preserve it as it is today. So there's no adapting, no progressing with time to say you can or cannot raise your house or repair that brick or masonry. And so a homeowner will say, hey, we would love to restore this building towards its former glory, but we also want to add on to it and renovate the plan because it doesn't have the kitchen in the center where we want it. It's all the way in the back. And sometimes there's pushbacks in a historic district that say, no, you can't really adapt it to today's need. You really need to keep it as it was when we drew that line in the sand. And I find that to be a, a fascinating dilemma that a lot of cities have now, including Charleston, which is trying to appreciate beauty at a definitive moment in time. A lot of the players that have a stake, of course, homeowners, preservation societies, the city developers, are constantly uh, asking themselves these questions and trying to tackle a lot of these issues. And they are, they're certainly complex. And it's easy to see any number of sides and viewpoints on the matter. But at the end of the day, my thought is that these are resources that once they're gone, they are gone forever. And the desire to manipulate them in ways to suit a contemporary lifestyle can be achieved without necessarily damaging too much of the historic fabric. These houses tell a wonderful story and they have survived for centuries, many of them. And if we are to think that our lifestyle today is incompatible with them, well, who is to say that the last 250 years of a building's life has always been compatible with its original design? Plenty of buildings were demolished and certainly have caused a lot of heartache for their loss. And there were others that, frankly, were replaced with better buildings. Engage as many of the stakeholders as possible. Because when you get enough intelligent people in a room, a good solution usually presents itself. The trick is just to have the patience and the willingness to embrace that process. Perhaps the best place to go are the, the quiet side streets where you really get to see a community, you really get to see a city, you really get to see the architecture and enjoy the architecture in a wonderful setting. Charleston's appeal isn't simply the romance of looking back to the way things were with narrow lots, cobblestone streets, and traditional architecture. 
Its appeal is why those idiosyncrasies are charming. The tangible character which tells us we're all in this together. Experiencing Charleston today is a marked contrast from individualistic attitudes where privacy and freedom are in turn manifested by sprawling separation and loss of a communal identity. Many of us travel to locations which have a sense of place because it's reassuring to live in community. This notion is anything but stagnant. Charleston isn't a vacation spot frozen in the past. It's a city we live in, vibrant and full of life. Cities We Live In is a production of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, a national nonprofit promoting the practice, understanding, and appreciation of classical design. To become a member and learn about additional programming, visit classicist.org. This episode was edited by Justin Kegley and produced by Justin Kegley and me, Kellen Krauss. Hosted by Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro, Anthony Catania, and Kellen Krauss. Thanks to our guest, Sebastian von Marshall.